How is it that we find ourselves surrounded by such complexity, such elegance? The genes of you and me, the genes of you and me, are all made of DNA. We're all made of the same chemical DNA. Hi, you're listening to DNA Today, a podcast and radio show where we discover new advances in the world of genetics. From genetic technology like CRISPR to rare diseases to new research, we have you covered. For a decade, DNA Today has brought you the voices of leaders in genetics. I'm Kira Deneen. I'm a certified genetic counselor and your host. My guest today to talk about nutrigenomics is Dr. Yale Jaffe, who earned her PhD in nutrigenomics. She has authored a few books and has been published in peer-reviewed journals. She's the founder and CSO of 3x4 Genetics. Welcome on the show. Thanks, Kara. I'm very happy to be here today. So I want to dive into it because I have a lot of questions. I'm shocked that even though we've been podcasting for 10 years on DNA Today, we've never had an episode, correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, but I don't think we've had an episode dedicated to nutrigenomics. Wow, I'm, I'm suitably horrified, completely, that for 10 years you've never had a guest on nutrigenomics. Yes, But I'm delighted <laughs> to be the one to bring you this You're the expert we're ex- bringing on here. That's right. So... so so let's, like, if, if we haven't spoken about this topic before, let's actually just start by saying, what is it? Sure. It's a big word that mostly no one understands. I and mean, when I first heard it, I didn't understand. And what makes it, let's also just, like, make sure we, all your listeners know, like, what is the difference between nutrigenomics and all the other genetics that they probably have heard on the show or are seeing every single day in kind of, in, in the world. So... Obviously, nutrigenomics speaks to nutrition and genetics together. So that's like, start with that. But what it is really is about who we are and how we respond to the world around us. And when I talk about responding to the world around us, I'm talking about the food we eat, the exercise we do, the environment that we expose ourselves to, the toxins that we might consume, the stress we endure, and even something like trauma. We all respond differently, and that's because 99.9% of our DNA is identical, but 0.1% is different. And the world of lifestyle genomics or nutrigenomics, call it what you want, but actually prefer lifestyle genomics because it's not just about nutrition, is really about why am I different? Why do I respond differently? Can I understand how I respond? And if I can understand, what are the best things for me to do? So, so that is, is kind of like the space. And then what it isn't is it's not medical genetics, which is kind of where you came from, right? Where you get these kind of rare genetic variants that if you have them, your chances of getting a disease are quite high or likely. Um, they, they're very much associated with chronic disease or very, very serious diseases. It's not Ancestry.com where you find out who your cousin is or find out where you came from in Eastern Europe. It's not that. It's not carrier genetics. Like I've got a trait, you know, I'm going to have blue eyes or brown hair or I'm going to have a unibrow, which we love getting information. I, I got an email from 23andMe the other day. That was one of their fantastic ones where they give you these really like what ha- your urine smells when you eat asparagus you know really important yes. useful stuff like that so it's not that it's about 
It's about common gene variants, changes in our DNA that are absolutely about evolution. They define who we are, but the most important thing is by themselves, they do not cause disease. They interact with the choices we make in our life, the food we eat, the exercise we do, and therefore give us some control on how our genes express themselves for our lives. Yeah, so really focusing more on epigenetics on that level. I feel like with what everything you're explaining there um, is a lot of like an epigenetic focus, you know, certainly including other just like genetic changes, but it has that. Yeah, well, it's yes, it. yes and no. So I love that because actually it's a 50-50 conversation. And, and, and I'll tell you why, like the first 15 years of my career, I focused on the first 50%. And the first 50% says, I'm going to study these, what I call them spelling changes. So we've got this amazing DNA sequence, which is just like an alphabet of letters that defines our blueprint. And the first 50%, we study these spelling changes that determine why we're different from the world. And that gives us insight about who we are and how we respond. That's half the conversation. The second half of the conversation is what you refer to, which is epigenetics, which again is a word that no one understands, even like serious scientists and health professionals. But what it basically means is I make a whole lot of choices every minute of every day, whether it's a decaf coffee or double espresso, whether I go running or whether I meditate, every single decision of every minute of every day, I make decisions that are gonna change the way my genes express or switch on and off and that is the world of epigenetics so in my world of lifestyle genetics i want to have both conversations because i want to first understand who you are get some insights about what in your body might be functioning optimally or suboptimally decide where we really want to focus our work and then i want to give you recommendations around those daily decisions to switch on and switch off the best possible optimal genes to drive you to the best optimal health. So it's 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 really, I call it insight and action. And it's like really time that we brought the conversations together and we, we didn't have them separately. Yes, because I think a lot of the conversation is always nature versus nurture. And it's like, no, it's nature it's and like, nurture. No, I think we have absolutely. to redefine that. Um, so now that we have a background on nutrigenomics and understand all right, what are we focusing on in terms of this genetics in this conversation, what aspects of our metabolism and our eating behaviors have identified genetic links? Okay, I'm going to start off with like a really bad answer, which is everything. She's not really helpful to you or your listeners, but I'm going to, I'll break it down a bit. So let's, let's break it down a bit. Let's try understand when I said that pretty much every decision we make um, and everything we do in our world will be defined to some degree by genetics. Let's understand what that is. So the first thing we talk about is, um, we call it cellular health, but it's really, imagine like people are, if all of us often think about our heart health because we've been like, had so much media, right? Heart health, skin health, lung health, um, brain health even. But no one ever said to you two things. One is, how healthy is your DNA? We really want to make sure that DNA is super healthy, right? Because when you make new cells with new DNA, you want to make sure it's beautiful and wholesome and intact and the other thing is do we spend like a whole lot of time and a whole lot of media campaigns saying how healthy are the cells in your body so there are some processes in our body like inflammation and detoxification and oxidative stress and methylation that really determine how every single individual cell in a healthy how optimal it is 
Now, surely it makes sense that before we worry about our heart and our lungs and our limbs and our skin, we want to make sure that at a cellular level, they are functioning as brilliant as possible. So I always start there, like right at the top, we call it going upstream, right? Then we can start thinking about how does genetics impact things like systems, like glucose and insulin is a system in the body that we really want to be. And we know some people are more susceptible to having a kind of just slightly mildly dysfunctional glucose insulin, which if the diet and lifestyle isn't right, is going to manifest as diabetes or insulin resistance. But it could be other areas. It's things like um, hormones. We all metabolize hormones differently, whether we're taking contraceptive pill, hormone replacement therapy, it's going to be metabolized differently. Um, how we, how our bones and our collagen, kind of how strong they are. Two of my favorite, a mood, anxiety, depression is so genetic, right? We just, that is totally nature and nurture. You just have to talk to anyone who's got a family of anxiety and it's just passed on, it's passed on. What are the genes that I'm are certainly one of them. more susceptible, yes. <laughs> right? We've all got it in our family. It's like, it's so obvious and yet we weren't having this conversation 10 years ago. And if we can understand that there's a genetic susceptibility to anxiety or depression, there's so much we can do early on to try and manage those brain messages. Because remember, it's brain messages, dopamine, serotonin, that are, are really battling to get going. And, and it can manifest in different ways. So we can understand that someone is more susceptible. And even things around memory loss, cognition, um, is genetic. And then my favorite topic, uh, the genetics of weight management. This is my personal favorite. This is where I did my PhD. We all gain and lose weight differently. For some of us, super easy to maintain a healthy weight, right? We can eat what we want, we do a little bit of exercise. But there's some of us who it's really hard. It's hard because we're hungry a lot. It's hard because we don't get as full as our friends or family. And it's hard because we just seem to gain weight easily and then we really want to lose weight, it's hard. At least 50% of how we manage our weight is determined by our genes and the rest is the decision we're making. And yet, I, my first degree was as a dietitian and in like five years of studies, no one mentioned genetics to me. Okay, it was a long time ago, but no one mentioned genetics. But still, and then, it's not course, something that comes still, up. Yeah. yeah. Still, I look at the dietetics degrees they're still not teaching it. So dietitians used to say like, you're eating too much, you've got no self-control, you've got no willpower. And I'm like, and I was part of that. I was like, now I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe we said stuff like that. Or the idea that everyone needs the same amount of calories because 50% will be determined. And remember that being able to consume calories and store them in your body meant you were gonna survive on the plains of Africa, right? So now yes, there's, there's a biological so reason behind that Correct. to conserve calories. Correct. It's evolutionary biology. We were the survivors. If you could hold on to that adipose tissue, you were the survivor. Now it's actually flipped against us. So everything in genetics, as you well know, is about kind of evolutionary biology. And then not to drag it out too long, exercise, sports genetics. Why can some of us just find it so easy to run fast, to run long, to swim, to jump, and to, to build muscle? You know, uh, why do some of us recover very well, other of us get injured very easily? And then lastly, of course, we mustn't forget nutrition. Why do some of us respond to gluten in certain ways or different vitamins? Do we absorb vitamins in the same way? Do we metabolize them in the same way? Do we need higher amounts? So that basically gives you like 
pretty much everything. I, I've got caffeine, obviously, is one of them. Obviously. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I know I've done some direct consumer genetic testing and it says, you're very sensitive to caffeine. I'm like, yep, I can check that box. Like, I have eight ounces of coffee. <laughs> yes. I'm good for the rest of the day. Like, you know, and, you know, my brother, we're full siblings. Nope, he, yeah. he can drink like 10 ounces of coffee and then he's good. So it's like, you know, that difference between our DNA is is predisposing us to like, okay, how do we break down caffeine? How does that affect us? Exactly. Um, so it's so interesting just to see even within family members. If you're applying to genetic counseling grad schools in the near future, I highly recommend checking out Sarah Lawrence's Why Genetic Counseling Wednesday Summer Series. This is the third year Sarah Lawrence will be hosting this series where you can interact through Zoom with genetic counselors from different specialties for two hours every Wednesday in June. It kicks off on Wednesday, June 1st at noon Eastern. As many of you know, I graduated from Sarah Lawrence program two years ago, and this series was a fun way to interact with prospective genetic counseling students. I'm really looking forward to meeting more of you during this series. Myself and fellow genetic counselors will share about our roles and answer your questions live. Not only will you hear from genetic counselors in a variety of specialties, you'll also have the opportunity to discuss ethical and social implications of genomic medicine, engage with current students, and learn about the exciting present and projected future of the profession. Anyone who attends all five will earn a certificate of completion and receive an application fee waiver for the grad program. Register now before we are fully booked. Go to slc.edu slash DNA today. Again, that's slc.edu slash DNA today to be part of this interactive genetic counseling experience. Perkin Elmer Genomics is a global leader in genetic testing, focusing on rare diseases, inherited disorders, newborn screening, and hereditary cancer. Testing services support the full continuum of care from preconception and prenatal to neonatal, pediatric, and adult. Testing options include sequencing for targeted genes, multiple genes, the whole exome or genome, and copy number variations. Using a simple saliva or blood sample, Perkin-Elmer Genomics answers complex genetic questions that can proactively inform patient care and end the diagnostic odyssey for families. Learn more at PerkinElmerGenomics.com. You know, recent, not a recent study, but an interesting study that I always think about now for years is looking at famines and how that affects like future generations. Like, you know, we look at the great Chinese famine and seeing, okay, the next two generations of family, they're at higher risk for obesity. And I would believe that's because of epigenetic factors being passed down. Have you that's heard right. of this or any, you know, famine? Yeah, so in fact, there's been some brilliant studies that have been done. Um, I mean, the Chinese famine, the Dutch famine was actually yes. where the best research was done. And then also the Irish potato famine was done. And, yes. and what's extraordinary about this story is that it was always kind of believed that... Um, First of all, that epigenetics. So epigenetics is complicated. So you've taken me down a very complicated road, right? I have. So I, I made this difficult for you, didn't I? I know. Thank you. Thank you for that. Right. So let's just explain what happens. So what happens is, remember when I said in the beginning, epigenetics is about how do we switch genes on and off? And the way that our body decides whether to switch on a gene, and when we switch on a gene, we make a protein, which means we're making an enzyme or a hormone. We're making the body do something. And when we switch off a gene, we silence that enzyme hormone. We kind of tuck it away, lock it away, and we say, we don't want to do inflammation right now. We're going to tuck it away. Okay. Now, how does the body know whether to switch on or switch off genes? Imagine there's little tags or flags. Call them what you were. And if you put a little flag onto a gene, it's kind of saying to the gene, you can go to sleep now. 
you don't have to make this hormone anymore. You can just chill and wrap yourself up around the chromosome and go and have a quiet time. But if I take the flag off, right, I'm going to say to the gene, hey, wake up, unravel yourself, make that protein, make that hormone, get to business. You know, you've got work to do in the body. Now, the interesting thing is it was always believed that when we were born, because um, we all have these flags and tags in our body. That's basically how our body works, right? And this is um, something called methylation, which is part of epigenetics. But think of it as flags and tags. When It was always believed that when we were born, that we were born kind of clean, right? We had no flags, Fabula Rosso, no blank, blank slate, right? Blank space, right? We were like a blank canvas. And then everything that happened to us, whether we were breastfed, whether we had a cesarean or a natural birth, what we were fed, the environment, the trauma, would add flags onto our or tags onto our DNA, and that would determine how our DNA expressed itself, how our DNA behaved. Well, the super exciting stuff that's come out from this research that Kira mentioned is that it doesn't actually work like that. A lot of the tags are cleaned off, but it's not a blank slate. And some of the tags stay with us. And so I'll give you another example, the Holocaust. What they found was that the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors were suffering from the same post-traumatic stress disorder that the grandparents, even though they had been brought up in a beautiful, safe, nurtured, well-nourished neighborhood in kind of Queens, New York. So how is it possible that they can be experiencing the trauma of their grandparents when they had no exposure to what happened? And it's the same thing in famine. That when we're, having, when we're starving, our body changes the way our genes behave and goes into a serious survival mode. Serious survival mode. So it puts in some tags and takes off other tags. Which is fine because then we get food again and, you know, we're kind of try and be healthy and everything. And two generations later, we're born into a, a, a country of wealth and food and nourishment and calories and everything. And yet babies were being born, actually, interestingly, very overweight. And they're like, so surely if they're overweight, they're healthy. You know, they're big babies. But actually it was the opposite. And what we started seeing was heart disease, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, at very young ages, in children who were descendants of those who had suffered in the famine, right? I hope this is making sense, Kira. Um, it's it a is. long story to yeah. get to a short story, right? And why? Because during the famine, the DNA had been kind of programmed to hold on to calories because it was such a survival phase. And some of that survival of holding on to calories, like the way they process glucose and insulin, had stayed through generations, even though the famine had gone, and had manifested. And we, it's very well documented that those grandchildren of famine survivors landed up having these chronic diseases like heart disease and diabetes very badly and very early in life, and not because of what they had done in their life. So that's like genetics complicated, but that's what makes it so interesting and kind of so cool. It is, yeah, and just looking at you know, as you're talking about, like, two generations later having these effects from their grandparents. Like, you know, I certainly, like, not my grandparents, my great-grandparents were in Ireland, and I'm sure experienced some of the potato famine and everything. So, sure. you know, it's, it's just so interesting to see that it's not just genetics that we're inheriting, but it's also, like, epigenetics literally means on top of 
the genome, like epigenomics. So, you know, looking at how that's being, genes are turned on and off and and how that's affecting us and, you know, our metabolism. And that makes sense. Slow down your metabolism, conserve your calories because there's only so many you have to survive. Um, So it's it's just interesting. And, And I imagine that a lot of this is looking more at polygenic risk scores um, not for the epigenetics part, but just like looking at genetics for metabolism, more focused yeah. on polygenic risk scores of, okay, let's look at a yeah. bunch of different changes throughout the genome and not just, oh, there's this one genetic change you have. This is what is leading to this risk yeah. um, for you. Is that kind of what, I know you've designed some neutrogenetic yeah, tests. Is that how the, it works? <laughs> you preach into the converted. So, um, <laughs> so I've been in working in genetics for 20 years and about five years ago realized that we had really um, gone astray and lost our way. And we were building genetic tests. We were making these sweeping recommendations based on a single gene. The reality is genetics doesn't work like that. And genetics impacts our body and how it works, but not one gene defining that, especially not in my world, remember, where genes interact with diet and lifestyle. So what I got to realize is that like 99.9% of the genetic testing companies, including quite a few that I'd been involved in, were building genetic tests where they were doing a test and they were saying, oh, you've got the MTHFR gene variant. You should take these supplements and eat these foods. And I had this huge epiphany about five, six years ago going, you know what? I've been getting it wrong for 15 years because genes don't act in isolation. They're not that powerful. But when you group them together in an area, so imagine everyone understands inflammation, everyone understands detox or glucose, you know. Imagine now taking all the genes that are going to impact that area, we can call it a biochemical area or metabolic area or anything that the body does area, right? And we group together all the genes and we stack them up into what exactly, as you said, a polygenic risk score. So we build a scoring mechanism we can actually assess how much are your genes impacting detox, impacting inflammation, impacting the ability to gain weight, right? And we can tell you individually how much that area is impacting you. And so that's actually why I started this other company, 3 for Genetics, um, four and a half years ago, because I realized that I'd been getting it wrong, essentially, for 15 years, and that the only way to give power to genetics is two things is group genes together, build them into scores so we can actually score it and bring power to the genes. And the second thing is make sure there's a whole bunch of people out there who are trained and educated and mentored and understand how to interpret genetics to make sure that all your listeners get the best possible value out of their genes. Because one of the problems we're seeing in direct-to-consumer genetic testing is that if you're going to buy it online and they're going to send you the answers, they're going to have to dumb it down so much to keep it safe, and I put that in inverted commas, that you might as well go Google on the internet, right? Because you're not going to truly get the personalization that you were looking for. So in so many ways, genetics has failed because we, we came up with this amazing science. We like wrote the whole genome project out, and then we dumbed it down so much that we could sell it directly online. So a lot of my work is education and training. So I spend like my whole life teaching practitioners, whether you're a dentist or a chiropractor or a naturopath or a nutritionist or a doctor, how do you take this beautiful, insightful information? How do you bring it into the context of who you are and what you want to achieve, whether you're a supreme athlete or just trying to lose some weight or just trying to be healthy or prevent disease? 
And then what kind of recommendations? And I think that's the true evolution of what we're seeing in genetics now, which hopefully we'll see more and more. Yeah, and that's why I always recommend if people do reach out and they're like, oh, I, I want to do one of these direct consumer tests. Like, what do you think? And I think my number one thing is understand the limitations of the testing, but also order from a company that includes genetic counseling with your results or someone, some healthcare provider, someone yeah. that's going to educate you. What does this actually mean? Because if you're not well versed in genetics, then it's like it to me, it's not very helpful at that point. Exactly. Um, but you don't get your value. Yeah. Right. Right. So it's interesting with all of this of just understanding like, okay, you're more predisposed to this or that in terms of, you know, I've seen the buzz term DNA dieting. So I guess that's kind of what this means in terms of like looking at what you're predisposed to and, and um, you know, tailoring your own diet and exercise to what we know about what you're predisposed yeah. to. So I just want to say two things on that. So one is we never talk about risk. We're not interested in risk. We've got no disease risk. We're not predisposed to that. We're just looking at these pathways, these metabolic processes in our body to see whether they're functioning optimally or not and how we can get them to function optimally. So in the work we do at 3x4, we have no conversations around disease. You're not predisposed to diabetes or cancer or anything. There are other companies that will do that. That's not what we do because what we want to do is find out how do we get your body to be firing on all cylinders and functioning as optimally? And we do that by understanding, A, which are the areas that might not be functioning so optimally, and B, what can we do? The second thing I want to mention is you use the word genetic counselor. Now, this is highly appropriate as you are a genetic counselor. Yes, but I'm a little I, I biased, just, right? I'm always throwing a sound. You're a little biased, <laughs> yeah. But for those listening, I just want to be very clear. When, when we started out, we spoke about two different kinds of genetics, medical genetics, which very much is about risk, right? What is my risk of getting breast cancer or prostate cancer? What is my risk of getting high cholesterol in the family? You know, everyone died when they were young from high cholesterol. And that is a really, really important field of genetics. And there are some brilliant companies out there that I refer people to. And there's some amazing genetic counselors who are trained to be able to like really understand the genetics and calculate susceptibility and risk through the family. And if you're looking for a rare um, disease, like genetic disease, where genetics plays a huge role, you need to see a genetic counselor. But that's not what I've been talking about, right? So what I've been talking about is nutrigenomics, which is lifestyle genetics. So understand your genetics, but ultimately there's loads you can do about it because you can make diet or lifestyle or supplement or exercise or stress choices around it to improve it. So the difference is, in my world, the choices we make have a huge impact. In the world of medical genetics, the choices we make have a, have a lesser impact. So we don't actually, um, we work with some genetic counselors who are very enlightened and very open to it, but mostly we actually work with practitioners who really work with patients to change their daily life. So whether it's dietitians, naturopaths, lots of medical doctors, chiropractors, um, people like that who, who then go on to study genetics. So it's kind of the opposite, like you study genetics and then learn counseling. We take practitioners who actually are either medical or nutritional and we train them in genetics so that they can bring genetics in. But in our world, genetics is only one piece of the puzzle that they bring in. In your world, genetics is a huge piece of the puzzle, which really needs attention. So I hope you don't mind, but it's yeah, important that we understand. Um, because we want to make sure that everyone's going to the right place to get the help they need. And if that is 
if there is a serious disease in your family that is happening early in life, you need to go the medical genetics route. If it's more the chronic diseases or sport or weight or everything, it's, it's the lifestyle genetics route. And it's fantastic that you're able to help in teaching and training healthcare providers because it's not just genetic counselors that can offer and explain services, um, you know, and information like this. It's like any healthcare provider can learn how to do this. And I think that's what the big part of it is. Like if there's a healthcare provider that's really well trained in genetics, I'm like, great, go see them. Like to me, it doesn't have to be a genetic counselor. Certainly in this space, as you're saying, like, you know, I'm sure- yeah, like, you know, there are yeah. probably some genetic counselors, as you're mentioning, but it's it's mostly other providers in that space. And Want to become a genetic counselor? Looking for ways to engage with the field and boost your resume for grad school applications? Then you should check out Sarah Lawrence's Why Genetic Counseling Wednesday Summer Series. Every Wednesday this June, Sarah Lawrence is hosting a series where you can interact through Zoom with genetic counselors from different specialties. It kicks off on June 1st. You can sign up at slc.edu slash DNA today. Again, visit slc.edu slash DNA today to register to level up your resume for applications in the fall. Did you know Perkin-Elmer Genomics was one of the first laboratories to offer whole genome sequencing on a clinical basis? Whole genome sequencing can maximize clinical diagnostic yield for patients. With turnaround time of four weeks for the proband sample, Perkin-Elmer's whole genome sequencing test is designed to provide access to additional valuable information compared to an exome. Perkin-Elmer also offers prenatal whole genome sequencing as well as ultra-rapid whole genome sequencing for critically ill newborns using dried blood spots. The ultra-rapid genome has a turnaround time of five days and includes mito, chromosomal CNV analysis, STR-TNR screening, and biochemical analysis. Also, listen back to episode 176 with Dr. Maduri Hegda, where we explore the power of whole genome sequencing, which also happens to be one of my favorite episodes of DNA Today. And stay tuned for a couple more episodes with Perkin Elmer soon. Discover all that Perkin Elmer Genomics has to offer at perkinelmergenomics.com. You know, I have so many questions. So I'm like, what do I ask in our last few minutes here? But I think one thing that I'm I'm curious about is if you have studied or if some of your other colleagues have studied certain genetic conditions that have metabolic symptoms just to understand human metabolics more. Um, so a condition that I think about is like Prader-Willi syndrome. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, yeah, of, yeah, it's of an obesity people syndrome. with increased yeah. appetite and obesity. Like, are there things that we can learn from genetic conditions to then apply to just humans in general of just understanding our genetics better? Kira, I love your questions. You certainly keep me on my toes. Okay, here's a great story. <laughs> yes. So, so actually, it's 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 great, right? We can we can do it with weight, Prader-Willi. We can do it with um, we can do it with um, um, cancer, but let's, let's do it with weight. Okay. So the, the most we learned about genetics was because we saw extreme cases. Now, in Cushing's disease or Prader-Willi syndrome, what happens in the children is they become grossly obese. And I use the word grossly because they become super, super obese, irrespective of a single calorie that passes their mouth, right? It has nothing to do with what they eat or exercise or lifestyle and their body will literally become huge very early on in life and there is nothing diet or lifestyle you can do about it this is medical genetics in its extreme and the geneticists went in and they found genes that had been impacted remember spelling changes so sometimes it's only a spelling change 
but it's very, very powerful. This is where we start learning about genetics. We always learn about kind of the, the more serious cases and then we apply it. So I'm going to give you an example. So for example, one of the most famous genes in, um, in this world of, of obesity is the leptin gene, where actually a lot of the studies were done in rats. Um, and then they, they discovered that there was like this little boy who was really, really, really obese. And when they gave him an injection of leptin, which is an enzyme, he literally became a normal weight kid again, right? And the problem with leptin is it controls appetite and satiety. So he was starving all the time, but like ravenously starving. It didn't actually matter how much he ate and he became very obese. And the same thing happened in, in, the, in the, the, I should say rats, they were actually mice. Sorry yeah, about right. that, they were mice, <laughs> they were mice. And, and so what happened is they, they obviously started off by giving injections of the leptin, leptin enzyme into the, into the mouse and found that the mice went back to normal size and then they found that if they injected the children with leptin, the same thing would happen. They would go from being a very, very obese child to having normal appetite, normal cells. Now this is beautiful research and this was done quite a few decades ago. And this started us understanding that there could be a gene in the body that wasn't working optimally that was causing this very severe condition, which was, which was Prado-Willi or, or Cushing's, and there's, and there's a number of them. But the interesting thing about the leptin gene is that there are spelling changes and there are spelling changes. So there are some of these spelling changes, remember it's just a one letter change in our DNA sequence, which are so impactful and so powerful that they can cause something like the diseases we've described, where whatever you eat or do has absolutely no impact on your body, and nothing short of a pharmaceutical injection is going to change that. But they found that on the same gene, the leptin gene, and the leptin receptor gene, LAPR, that there were spelling changes in these genes that meant that the leptin enzyme wasn't functioning optimally, but it wasn't so bad that we were seeing this early onset obesity. So it was like but dimmed down almost. It was dimmed down a whole lot, right? So it was like, imagine high impact, low impact. So we, call, we use the word penetrance in genetics, as you know, but it's, it's kind of a tricky word, but so I prefer impact. So the one, the gene had a super high impact, and in my world, it has a really low impact. But it's having an impact. It's, it's changing something about how you engage with your food and your calories. Because what we discovered through genetics is that there are some people who are hungrier and there are some people who don't get as full as I do. So we'll eat the same burger and chip and fries, I should call it, but I am full and you don't get full, right? What's it about? It's because there are spelling changes in the leptin gene, which are not so dramatic as to give you this huge condition, but are impacting your ability to moderate your appetite. And that's why the world of, um, I'm going to tell you one more story. Let me do one more story. The world of medical genetics and, and lifestyle genetics is so closely understood. And in 2021, one of my favorite articles in the whole world came out in, in August 21 by Farhad Kira. I'll send you the article. It's amazing. You see me writing. Yeah, because, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't worry. I'll, I'll email it to you. Because what in my world there was always this huge separation between medical genetics, which is the one you've described like huge gene impact, nothing we can do with diet and lifestyle, and then low impact, lots of diet and lifestyle. And the one gene that was always causing a lot of conf uh, confusion is the BRCA gene, the BRCA1, BRCA2, which are associated with breast cancer. 
But, and everyone who's seen the story of Angelina Jolie and she had a double mastectomy because she had this, this gene. And the interesting thing is when we look at this gene variant, remember spelling change, and we see if you have that spelling change, what are the chances of getting breast cancer? It isn't a number. It isn't like 80% of all people who have the spelling change get breast cancer. It's somewhere between 40% and 80%. It's like, how's that possible? If it's such a powerful gene variant, why isn't everyone who's got it getting breast cancer or 80% of everyone? Yet some people who had the gene variant never went to get, never got breast cancer. And why I love this article so much is that they show that yes, it's your diet and lifestyle that has an influence, but the main impact that will determine whether someone will manifest the disease like breast cancer, familial hypercholesterolemia, will be what I call the low impact genetic ecosystem, which is a huge mouthful. But basically what I'm saying is, you know all those other genes we were talking about that we build in polygenic risk scores, the ones that aren't so powerful, that interact with our diet and lifestyle, that is what I call the ecosystem of the genes. So you've got a high impact one surrounded by a whole lot of other genes that are impacting the way you detoxify toxins, the way you detoxify smoke particles, the way you detoxify hormones. And all these things together will impact your risk susceptibility for breast cancer. So why one person would go on to get breast cancer and why one wouldn't was largely determined by these less powerful low impact. And that is why the world of medical genetics and the world of lifestyle genetics should be the same conversation and should not be kept aside because we're discovering that they actually work really, really beautifully together. That is such a good example because I, like, as you're talking about this, I'm like, where do I think cancer genetics is headed in terms of this? It's like, I think we're going to be looking at more of this polygenic risk or like, okay, of is I like the stacking analogy you have, like maybe the BRCA one and two gene changes there. Like maybe that's a really tall block, right? And the other ones are just little tiny ones, little but they're all playing a role, right? So, um, or that jar analogy that some people use, you know, you start out with so many marbles in and then your lifestyle, exactly. you add more marbles till it overflows. Um, but I think that's really interesting. And I think there is a lot of you know, collaboration between these different fields to say, okay, well, let's put it all together in terms of like this person's health. Um, and I think that's just, yeah, just yeah. so fantastic. I think that's if you had more time. <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely. We get to talk but again. Thank you so I'm, much. I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, you're going to yeah. be, on, um, I'm delighted that you're going to be joining me on my podcast. So we do yes. get to talk again. So exactly. Um, so you guys we have to check out the conversation. Yeah, you guys have to check out her podcast, The Power of Genetics. So I'll be on in the future. Um, and yeah, it was just a pleasure to be able to interview you. And I have to say, listeners know I just love accents. You know, I, everyone has an accent, <laughs> but I love non-American accents that are different to me. Um, so it's just, it's beautiful. Um, but thank you so much for coming on and just, you know, exploring all this with me. Because even, you know, with the... Um, the famine studies like that's something that's been on my mind i'm like i've never actually like yeah. talked about it on their show or really broke that down and everything so yeah it's yeah, that could be a very whole podcast just in itself i know it's right <laughs> yes yeah. but we'll include links to everything that we mentioned in today's episode uh, but thank you again for coming on this is really really cool episode i think it was very fun i really enjoyed it thanks kira great questions <laughs> For more information about today's episode, visit dnapodcast.com, where you can also stream all episodes of the show. We encourage your questions, comments, guest pitches, and ideas. Send them all into info at dnapodcast.com. Search DNA Today on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, so you can connect with us there. 
And a favor, please rate and review the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This truly helps us climb the charts and allow more genetic nerds like yourself to find the show. DNA Today is hosted and produced by myself, Kira Deneen. Our social media lead is Corinne Merlino. Our video lead is Amanda Andrioli. Thanks for listening, and join us next time to discover new advances in the world of genetics. The genes of you and me, the genes of you and me, are all made of DNA. We're all made of the same chemical DNA.